Welcome to 2024. With the 2024 election on the horizon, the wars in Gaza and Ukraine, and numerous other foreign policy and domestic news stories, it's never been more important to stay informed. The DSR Network has you covered, with experts across all of these stories, to bring you the analysis and commentary of the stories that matter. Later this month, the DSR Network will introduce the TNR Daily, featuring Greg Sargent, formerly of the Washington Post, and a close friend of the show. Don't miss a moment of our coverage. Become a member of the DSR Network today. Members receive exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to attend DSR live events, a members-only Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and more. For the month of January, receive 50% off your first year of membership. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSR2024 at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSR2024. Thank you for your support. Hi, this is Riley Fessler. In light of this week's horrific shooting in Iowa, this week's episode from The Silo is a Words Matter featuring a conversation on the epidemic of mass shootings in the U.S. We hope you find it informative. This is Words Matter with Norm Ornstein. What's the difference? The difference is access to these guns and especially to these AR-15s. And Dr. Kavita Patel. What more do we need to do to argue that we need a National Institute on Gun Violence? Hello and welcome to the relaunch of Words Matter. Each week, Norm Ornstein and I will talk about the issues facing our country as we head into the midterms and what our leaders are saying and doing about them. We hope you like the show and we'd love to hear your feedback as we continue to shape it moving forward. If you have any comments, feel free to send us an email at podcasts at thedsrnetwork.com. That's podcast plural at thedsrnetwork.com. Now on with the show. So today we're going to be talking about guns. And I was struck as we have a podcast on words matter, going back to the Second Amendment, which says a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state at the beginning. But too many people have ignored those words. And of course, we've had this mass shooting epidemic plaguing the country even since Uvalde. We have had almost a dozen mass shootings just in that brief period of time. Last week, President Biden spoke to the country about the epidemic of mass shootings plaguing us. In the speech, he highlighted how intractable the issue has been in Washington. After Columbine, after Sandy Hook, after Charleston, after Orlando, after Las Vegas, after Parkland, nothing has been done. This time, that can't be true. This time, we we must actually do something. So, Kavita, Joe Biden, we know, has been focused on this issue for a long time. We also know that when we had a ban on assault weapons, that we did not have this kind of epidemic of mass shootings, and that it has soared since the ban basically died because in the George W. Bush administration, 10 years on in 2004, they refused to continue it. 
There were 400,000 assault-style weapons, the AR-15 being now the core example. Back at that point, now there are 20 million in the United States. And we know that we have a continuing problem getting the focus for any length of time. Every time we have one of these horrible mass shootings that involves children especially, there is a national wave of disgust and horror and a desire to do something. And then in part because Republicans and Democrats who are gun advocates stall and wait until the attention span of the public moves on to something else, nothing happens. Is this time going to be different? Yeah, Norm, I hope so. I will be honest that when I finished hearing the full clip of President Biden's speech, I wasn't able to listen to it live, unfortunately. But after I finished listening to the speech in its entirety, I'll be honest, there was a part of me that said, this is it. I mean, this feels like I could have cut and pasted this and inserted it post any of the unfortunate hundreds of mass shootings we've had in 2022 alone. But then I kind of backed up and I thought to your point about at least the kind of cumulative response of which President Biden is just one. I think what's stunning is actually looking at some of the world front pages in the days following Uvalde. And, you know, with given what's going on globally in our just the pandemic, Ukraine crises in energy, Asia, et cetera, alone, you would think that our kind of mass shooting in Uvalde, which is incredibly tragic, but unfortunately not abnormal, would not occupy front page territory. But it is in a lot of countries, including in, in the UK and New Zealand, countries, Canada, with the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau having a pretty pointed response that, I, frankly, I wish we had had in the United States around weapons and banning assault rifles and assault weapons of that type. And it was interesting for me and hopeful for me to see not just one-time coverage, but kind of sustained coverage, even if it's coverage of the U.S.'s inaction. So I do feel a bit more optimistic. And interestingly enough, as you and I scan social media, I see a lot more people being pretty vocal, whether it's every town moms demand action or just individuals who are kind of saying that like the only reason we have to give up, even though it seems like Congress is giving up or the perception that Congress will give up, which you and I know politically is highly likely, that this time we cannot allow for Congress to give up. We cannot allow for leaders to just let time go by and move on to the next news cycle. So I am more optimistic. What troubles me when you read the Second Amendment, it reminded me of debates that we had had in the early part of the century, 21st century, around the right to have paramilitias. You realize, you recall, Norm, that that was what guided a number of court decisions whether or not lay individuals had the right to have these kind of military style weapons. The need for that debate has subsided and been replaced by should an 18 year old have any need to purchase 17 magazines of assault ammunition? And I think so we are seeing a bit of a, a difference yet still guided by the courts with a Supreme Court decision that is going to have an incredible impact on the interpretation so for any of our listeners, uh, one of the things that I, I hope we can do, you and I, is, is to try to put back the words so that people are reminded of what, how did we get here and what is it that we need to do to, in my mind, kind of remind a public who is completely ADD, you know, because of life, myself included, like what's at stake here. So I'm optimistic that that's happening. 
Okay, I'll be the Debbie Downer here at least a little bit. Um, I will say, though, that there's a, a really good book about the first Congress uh, by historian Fergus Bordewick. The first Congress was not one filled entirely with uh, states people like Benjamin Franklin. It did have James Madison in the House. It was a pretty motley crew, including a lot of mediocre people, but they rose to the occasion and understood that the first Congress was going to be a model for whether we were actually going to be able to have the kind of government that the Constitution had laid out. And of course, the first Congress basically took that Bill of Rights, passed it through so it could be ratified as the first 10 amendments of the Constitution. And what's interesting in the book is you see a couple of things. The first is Madison went along with the Bill of Rights, those 10 amendments, even though he didn't think it was necessary. He thought that those were obvious. It was uh, things that you could take for granted. But he included them. And in the debates, for a lot of them, there wasn't any debate at all. But there was an extensive debate about the Second Amendment. That debate was entirely about what it meant to have a well-regulated militia. And what we know is there were a couple of reasons for this. The first is they were disbanding the army. They understood that we were going to have threats to the country. Internal, remember the Whiskey Rebellion, external, and you needed to have some force that could protect the free society. And that meant a militia. We weren't going to have a standing army, but it had to be well regulated. The second is that Madison was juggling the demands of the various states, most of which wanted their own independent militias and not one that would have a national regulation. And he wanted to leave a little bit of running room there to get them to ratify, but understood what it meant. There was nothing in this conversation about individual gun ownership. And of course, if we had the framers in a time machine who could come back today and look at weapons of war designed only to kill mass numbers of people, a weapon, these assault rifles that James Stavridis, the admiral, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs said, had no business in private hands, were allowed. And if you look at the key Supreme Court decision, the Heller decision, that threw out the District of Columbia's law about people having guns in their homes, it pretty much ignored Justice Scalia, the so-called originalist, almost wrote out of the picture what a well-regulated militia went and distorted it otherwise. So we've got that as a bit of a backdrop. But what I would say to counter the optimism, and there's a little bit of optimism, I mean, there's a real chance that we're going to get some kind of bill through with 60 votes in the Senate. It's not going to include a ban on any weapons. It may not even include raising the age limit to 21 for access to AR-15s and other assault rifles. But it's also, and I'll take this back to the words matter, the mantra for the NRA and for others who don't want any change is the way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. In Buffalo, where we saw this mass shooting done by a white supremacist. And in Uvalde, the shooters had body armor. In Buffalo, we had a security guard, an ex-cop, who fired on that shooter, but the body armor stopped it, and he was killed himself. So we're dealing with a different kind of threat. We're getting people who are in military gear, 
with this 18-year-old had 1,675 rounds of ammunition. In Texas, they're now moving forward with a law that would allow concealed handguns for teachers. In the, the Ninth Circuit, the California law that said minors could not buy these assault weapons, that law, at least for now, was thrown out by two Trump judges. So we're not moving entirely in the right direction, and we better get this done quickly if, in fact, what we're seeing in the Senate is a handful of Republicans who are just going to drag out these negotiations, and then the January 6th committee will take over, and inflation will be another issue, and we're past it again. We'll be back in the same disastrous place. Something that emerged as always emerges as well, in addition to it's not bad people, you know, bad people carrying guns, it's that good people need to carry more or have the ability to exert their right to protect themselves. I can't help but reflect on Philadelphia as another. Unfortunately, we have too many examples to cite where you're exactly right, where we had situations where people were, quote, appropriately armed. In fact, per capita, Philadelphia in that region, law enforcement, just in terms of literal personnel on that block in Philadelphia that had the most recent larger mass shooting of more than four people it itself had more per capita law enforcement armed than almost any area in the United States. So this was something that obfuscates. In the 94 to 2004 assault weapon ban, there have been a lot of people that have said, and quote, look, it didn't make a difference. One thing that happened kind of in that time period was the Dickey Amendment, named after Congressman Jay Dickey, which basically put in a block in total on any government funding for research related to gun violence. And the language has consistently kind of been in place so that no congressional monies can go into any sort of, quote, gun violence research. There have been times after Sandy Hook and recently where it has been expanded and, quote unquote, CDC is allowed to do certain types of research, but the amount of money that goes to it, because Congress knows not to put a lot of money to this effort, has been in the amount of about $25 million when we have a, I would argue, trillion dollar problem from the epidemic of gun violence. So when people kind of try to, you know, say these things don't matter, these things didn't help. Well, we've actually, the NRA has done an incredible job of lobbying such that they've created blind spots in our research on this exact topic. But the one research, the one point that we do have that I can't help but insert is that 2020 was the first year for persons under the age of 19, so this is children, including adolescents, that violence from guns was the leading cause of death. So it overtook car accidents and crashes, which has been the typical, or drownings, which had all been in the same category. So I can't help but say, to add to your Debbie Downer, the few statistics we have are all pointing in the wrong direction. So maybe what we can do now is actually kind of bring up one of those red herrings, mental health that often comes up. Here's Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell at an event in London, Kentucky last week. We have a Second Amendment to the Constitution. We take it seriously. There's a right to keep and bear arms in this country. So what I've done is encourage some bipartisan discussions that are going on. In fact, I just had a, a call with one of the members of it to see if we can find a way forward, consistent with the Second Amendment, that targets the problem. And it seems to me there are two broad categories 
that underscore the problem. Mental illness and school safety. This is not just raised by Republicans. Here's Andrew Cuomo, then governor of New York in 2019, talking about his remedy for gun violence. The Make America Safer pledge for elements, an assault weapon ban, high capacity magazines, universal background check, mental health database, red flag laws. So as you can see, and I'll just try to do as as we want to do in Words Matter in many cases, I just brought up a couple of uh, important facts and statistics about mental illness and mass violence. There have been a number of papers written in the public health literature around this, but I think one thing to just keep in mind is that while the mass shootings that we've been discussing, everything at Uvalde and, and Buffalo, Philadelphia, that they're devastating and often get the most attention in media, they account for literally less than 1% of firearm injuries in the United States. So it's actually difficult, just from a statistics perspective, to use statistics in a confident and precise manner to dictate how often mental illness is the driver of these mass murders. And I think that just needs to be said because it is so frequently used, but it's literally not, we're literally talking about not just the mass shootings, but the 99 you know, percent of what's happening that leads to that statistic that children are dying by gun violence. And that's just what we do know. There has been research done to line up kind of well-known mass shooters in the United States over time and how many of those, quote unquote, had been diagnosed with a mental illness prior to the event. And it's approximately 15 to 20 percent. Is that shocking or surprising? No. Is it shocking or surprising to then look at rates of a history of child abuse, history of drug use, history of social isolation? Those rates far exceed and actually when controlled, even in those very, very small studies, small numbers, exceed the statistics of how many mass shooters had a mental illness. And so I think that there is this high correlation between mental health and violence in general, and that has a broader epidemiology. And that literally does a bit more to show that mental illness does not cause violence more broadly. So this is just anything from people with mild to moderate mental illnesses compared to the general population. And I think that's critical. And what that tells me as not just a doctor, but a human, is that in our general population, we have mental health problems, that this is not exclusive to a subset of people that are prone to fill in the blank, violence, gun shootings, mass murders. So I say all of that because this is something that just irks me. I'm sure it irks you. And it seems so convenient. And I think part of it, I've, I've had to try to sit back and try to say, So I think mentally, as people, we need to be able to attach some sort of abnormality or anomaly to these mass shooters because they can't, just by conception of what they've done, they cannot be like us. They must be. Therefore, something is so fundamentally broken. And because of the stigmatization of mental illness, not just our culture, but many cultures around the world, that therefore broken is attributed to mental health. And it also offers Governor Abbott, for example, an incredibly convenient excuse to say, we're going to fortify schools. Governor of Ohio, Mike DeWine, we're going to spend $100 million into ammunitions training for our teachers and on mental health. But it absolutely avoids the problem that we just have too many guns in this country. Norm, your thoughts? So, I mean, there's so many areas here that leave me seething. 
First, getting back to a couple of the points you were making, young people dying by guns is a problem at this point largely of suicide. And what we know is so many young people who have been bullied or who have issues sometimes impulsively will attempt suicide. And we know from uh, huge numbers of cases that those who fail say, oh my God, I really didn't want to do that. I didn't mean to do that. If you're doing something impulsively, but you do it with a gun, there is a much greater likelihood you're going to succeed. And so having all of these guns around adds to the problem of suicide among young people. That's one thing. A second point is we know that people with mental illness are far more likely to be victims of violence than they are to be perpetrators of violence. The third point is that when we see these horrible incidents of mass shootings involving somebody with a serious mental illness, take, for example, the Parkland case or the case of Gabby Giffords, these are people with untreated serious mental illness. And we know from both of those examples that family members tried repeatedly to get some kind of treatment, including the wraparound services necessary to get them treated and stabilized. And our system is so broken that they were unable to see anything happen that could have helped. There is a problem with the broken mental health system. But this is an excuse now that the supporters of an unfettered access to weapons of mass destruction out there are using. And the most powerful evidence that this is a red herring is we just have to look at other countries, comparable countries, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, all the European countries. They all have serious mental illness. There is no reason to believe that their relative incidence of those with serious mental illness is significantly different from ours. But guess what? They don't have mass shootings of this sort. What's the difference? The difference is access to these guns and especially to these AR-15s and comparable ones with huge magazines and the access to destructive bullets. To your point about victimization, I worry so much that even whether it's Democrats or Republicans, as they're trying to think about congressional solutions, you know, Chris Murphy and John Cornyn on the Senate side trying to lead this by, quote, bipartisan solutions to this. It just, it, it's, it's a very convenient blaming mental illness. And, and therefore, to your point, even kind of the appropriate like identification that more likely to be victims, you know, substance use, social isolation, actually even a track record of extremist beliefs of different kinds have all been better predictors. But basically by blaming mental illness, it conceals everything rather than revealing everything. It just does an incredible job of painting this opaque blanket over all of this. And I think it goes without saying that these two things can be true. We have an incredibly broken mental health care system and we really do need to address mental health and we have you know way too many guns and too much gun violence those two things are true true not related to the way that people want one of the kind of proposals being floated around what has been known as red flag laws when you look at a state like california which has actually had a registry a statewide registry and the ability for law enforcement, as well as um, family and household members to be able to kind of flag 
and report concerning relatives, family members, citizens, people who live at a certain address that they're concerned about their ownership of a firearm for any a number of reasons, domestic violence, et cetera, that the courts and the system with which the courts then issue kind of these protective orders and then the actual physical acts of law enforcement or somebody exercising those protective orders has been so backlogged and that many local law enforcement officials are not even aware, kind of your typical left hand not speaking to the right hand. So even if we were to have, I think, outside 19 states in the District of Columbia, which have some of these red flag laws on the books, implement, quote unquote, a more universal kind of red flag law, which does point to people who might have had a track record of previous psychotic breaks, so severe mental illness with a, with a firearm, and they are raised as concerning, we still have a lot more to do. And, and then it begs the question, well, why do we have such easy access to guns at all, period? So we keep looking for these patchwork, convenient ways to avoid the exact problem that we keep coming back to. So I think uh, people want for there to be a convenient way to explain the inexplicable when you see kind of these, again, less than 1% of shootings that fall into this mass shooting category that people think of as evil, which I think is very appropriate that that's how people label it. But it does not actually reflect the conversation that we need to have. So I, and I want to point out the Dickie, I won't let this one go, because even though we have said that, uh, quote unquote, the CDC can conduct research looking into the epidemic of gun violence and only $25 million going to that compared to literally yearly billions of dollars that we dedicate to things that have a much lower ranking on causes of death. I think that that alone is something where I've been disappointed that the Biden administration has not exerted a lot more control. They've put in new people to lead our Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, new people to lead kind of ATF. We have quote unquote pieces in place, but if you have no funding, what we've done is we've neglected to generate an entire field of gun violence public health researchers by not allowing for there to be tracks of funding that facilitate faculty, that facilitate. And what we depended upon now are Michael Bloomberg funding spots at public health schools around the country, philanthropy having to fill the void, but nowhere near kind of what could be done if you actually had reliable federal funding, but then also a very clear assessment. We have institutes, and then I'll get off my perch so that we can talk about another aspect with our members. We have dedicated entire institutes to heart disease, to kidney disease, all appropriately so. What more do we need to do to argue that we need a National Institute on Gun Violence? I can't think of any better examples, numbers, statistics, lack of data, lack of understanding of the effectiveness of interventions. So You'll hear it here on Words Matter first that uh, not only do we have a lot more to do with COVID, but I just can't imagine how to make a stronger example for a National Institute of Gun Violence that's funded and federally funded in perpetuity by our government. And something that actually Biden might be able to do by executive order or executive action. There's a lot more to talk about. I'll make one last point before we move on to our members, and that is the impact of tribalism in all of this. You know, if you go back to when the assault weapons ban was instituted, most police departments in the country wanted significant gun control. 
they were the ones affected by the access to uh, guns that had been unregistered, to cop killer bullets, to these mass destructive weapons that were used by criminals against them. Now, police unions across the country, which have become more tribal, are opposed to a lot of these actions. And that's another one of the pernicious effects of what's happened to our politics more generally. We'll be coming back to this issue, I'm sure. We want to thank those of you who joined us. It would really be helpful as we relaunch this show. Words Matter was uh, really a powerful podcast. We're so happy to be back and doing this together. It would be so helpful if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this feed on your favorite podcast player. We'd like you to share this episode with your friends on social media. And if you liked it and want even more of our conversation, become a member of the DSR Network. Get a bonus segment where we talk about what comes next in the fight against gun violence. Words Matter is a production of the DSR Network. The executive producer of the DSR Network is Chris Kotnor, and the producer of Words Matter is Brad Haper. The next episode of Words Matter will be in your podcast feeds on June 17th. See you then. Welcome back, DSR members. This is uh, Kavita Patel and Norm Ornstein coming back to you with a special segment just for our members. And as we're trying to do with each of our episodes, start with a clip or start with some words. Here's a clip of Senator Chris Murphy, one of the leaders in the Senate negotiations on behalf of the Democrats, along with John Cornyn on the Republican side. This is Chris Murphy talking with Jake Tapper on CNN's State of the Union Sunday about his feelings about the ongoing negotiations in the Senate. I've never been part of negotiations as serious as these. There are more Republicans at the table talking about changing our gun laws and investing in mental health than at any time since Sandy Hook. Now, I've also been part of many failed negotiations in the past, so I'm sober-minded about our chances. We are talking about a meaningful change in our gun laws, a major investment in mental health, perhaps some money for school security that would make a difference. On the table is red flag laws, changes to our background check system to improve the existing system, a handful of other items that will make a difference. Can we get there by the end of next week, as Senator Schumer has requested? I don't know. But as late as last night, we were engaged in conversations about trying to put a package together because I think Republicans realize how scared parents and kids are across this country. I think they realize that the answer this kind cannot be nothing. So, Norm, you hear not just uh, Chris Murphy kind of talking about his sentiments and his related optimism to being able to do something. But uh, as Chris Murphy has done this before, unfortunately, especially after Sandy Hook, when I think most of the country kind of got to know Chris Murphy, to be honest, understanding not only his passion about gun control, but what I think he's been sustained as a voice in this effort, but being a little bit on the realism side. You've also had Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, almost everyone in the Democratic leadership that has also inserted into this commentary about this particular issue really appealing to especially suburban voters come November. So in thinking about this, just your thoughts and reaction, Norm, to what you heard and probably your assessment of congressional action, as well as comment at least how this might affect midterm voters come November, which is a very long kind of, if you think about it in a cycle, it is a lifetime away. 
And will this help to bring out the voters that we know tend to not come out and vote? So, you know, Chris Murphy has been a leader in this, and it is from deep in his core, the horror of what happened at Sandy Hook, knowing those parents, anybody who has young children, certainly anybody who's lost a child, feels that deeply. He's been trying over and over again to make something happen. He is now, as that clip shows, realistic that either we continue to push for something truly meaningful, which will not uh, get through the Senate, or we work to get something, even if it is inadequate, but that moves the ball forward an inch or two, which will require this kind of bipartisan action to get buy-in from 10 Republican senators. You know, if we go back and look a little bit at the history, we know that in the aftermath of Sandy Hook, we had this quite remarkable negotiation between conservative Republican Pat Toomey and conservative Democrat Joe Manchin. We got a Manchin-Toomey bill, which would have given us much stronger background checks and done a few other things. And even though it involved two conservatives who had had sterling ratings from the NRA, it got only 54 votes in the Senate and did not survive a filibuster. One might have imagined, since Joe Manchin invested an awful lot in that and saw that his hope that the filibuster threat would bring major bipartisan work when that failed, would say, maybe we need to change the filibuster. That hasn't happened. Chris Murphy knows that with the current makeup of the Senate, we're not going to get that kind of change. And now the question is, with a negotiation that has fundamentally involved five Democrats and five Republicans, are there going to be, if they reach an agreement, and we know that that agreement is going to be a fairly modest one, it'll include a background check, it'll include ways of encouraging states to do red flag laws, it'll include more security for guns in the household. You know, an awful lot of what happens is even if a young person has been unable to get a weapon for himself or herself, they got them hanging around the house. And uh, we know that, in fact, it was basically unlocking the gun safe that enabled the mass shooter at Sandy Hook to get access to those terrible weapons and bullets. But whether it's going to be a really strong background check bill, which will include those gun shows and the so-called gun show loophole, whether they'll do anything about ghost guns, including the ability to manufacture one's own gun with a 3D printer, remains to be seen. And of course, there'll be nothing here about restricting these terrible weapons or even necessarily raising the age limit. So it's limited, but we don't even know if they're going to have 10 Republicans willing to do that. And that, you know, takes us to the, the larger point. Will this be an issue strong enough in the campaign that it can either force action because it changes who wins and who loses? What happens, for example, in Texas if after the complete failure and outrageous abdication of responsibility by Governor Greg Abbott. If he wins re-election, he's going to say, hey, I can do anything I want on this front. And the same will be true of the Texas legislature. What happens if Republicans recapture control of the Senate? 
One of the things that we know is that the Senate is dominated by those rural and smaller states. It is dominated by the amount of money coming into the NRA and through gun manufacturers to those members of Congress. They're going to resist doing anything significant for a long time. I applaud Chris Murphy for being pragmatic enough to say, we got to try something now, even if it's not only far from perfect, but very far from perfect. If we can get 60, if we can make that first step, then maybe we can act further looking down the road. Now, the next challenge, as you mentioned, is what about the attention span of Americans? And here, I would be slightly more hopeful in this sense. This may fade. People are going to look at other things that are more directly related to their daily lives, like inflation. We don't know what will happen with the Roe v. Wade decision in the Supreme Court and what that might do. We know that the public is largely dissatisfied and President Biden's approval rating is low and Democrats are generally in trouble. But I think this issue is not going to fade because, tragically, we're going to see more and more shootings. And then the question becomes whether, as we get more and more of them, people just get deadened to it and tune it out. If that doesn't happen, I think this could be a pivotal issue in November. And I'll add to that, just we've got two, maybe three additional dynamics, especially at the state levels with, I I will just say the redistricting has also just magnified and intensified. If you're in a red area, and by the way, like that part of Texas, New Valley, the southern kind of Texas area, that is that is deep red in most most of those districts. That if you're in a red district like that, and we can, I was just going to mention a couple of races where I saw this play out because we had primaries, we had some contentiously close races that so we thought in the days after the Uvalde shooting, just to see if some of this sentiment even made some of these candidates that were on the bubble on the GOP side even inject anything into there and. Arizona, you had the Republicans that are vying for the Senate nomination there, and they basically were like, we don't, we don't need to talk about gun restrictions. And they've got Mark Kelly, the husband of Gabby Giffords, obviously, who's running as the Democrat in that race. And Arizona was rated by literally by Guns and Ammo magazine as like the quote, most gun friendly state in the nation, something by the way that Greg Abbott wants to take back uh, for the state of Texas. And all they have to do is just keep reverberating on that message. Democrats have it backwards. They want to get rid of our guns and they want to defund the police. They've tacked that on too. We're not going to ban guns, period. And so that's then enter red herrings, enter gaslighting for mental health, or we need to get the kind of school teachers trained. And that message is resonating because you are still seeing turnout with those predominantly red states, you know, we're not flipping any of those states. So then you get back to close races, which I think We'll have a number of come November. Will that be enough to net net with increased voters? Because you would imagine that the GOP is going to, it's a challenge. Do you, do you give significant messaging time to kind of countering what Democrats are doing, like, like the Arizona did? Or do you actually just kind of say, we stand for what we stand for, and then concentrate on other issues that become linchpin issues to bring out even more GOP momentum? To your point, Norm, Roe v. Wade or any of the after effects of the ruling that we expect to come any day now. So I think it's just going to be, no matter what you do, these are these are going to be contentious issues. I just don't know the net net of, of people turning out. I want to make a couple of additional 
points before we go. One is the critical voters here are those suburban voters, the college-educated suburban voters. And if Democrats can make a powerful pitch on this issue, it could make a difference. It's at the margins, but that's what matters in elections. The second point is this. What Republicans are going to be doing in many, many states is arming teachers and creating, as Lindsey Graham has suggested, a group of paramilitary types, sometimes former military ones, to be hired to guard schools. Now, just think about teachers having guns in the classroom. We've already seen some examples in the past of a teacher who left a loaded weapon in the restroom just by accident. But imagine if a student intent on doing violence, who doesn't have access to a gun at home, overpowers the teacher, takes the gun, you're already inside the school. The formula for disaster, for more incidents happening, of a teacher who gets angry at a student and has a loaded gun right there. I mean, the idea that this is going to be protecting people is insane. And that shows you how far they're willing to go just to keep anything from happening of significance that really would deal with this issue. Now I can't help but pile on. So shortly after Katrina, I got into the kind of public health side of uh, pandemics and natural disasters after Katrina. And we did a, I kind of helped as a first responder at, since most of the people being displaced came to Texas. So I helped as a first responder, but something that we saw, Norm, which we actually then, I was at the time employed at the Rand Corporation. We actually then were successfully able to quickly do some studies of something that I visually saw was that as people were being, being displaced into kind of larger settings, stadiums, gymnasiums, et cetera, there was a presence of the National Guard. And there were a lot of reasons that that was appropriate. The National Guard, if anyone hasn't seen, kind of recalls some of these images. So you had these like little children in cots, all kind of crammed in families together. You had these National Guards with these very large rifles and they were there for protection. They weren't there to, you know, kind of, they weren't there arbitrarily. They even had a ratio for however many people, this is how many National Guard we would have standing post. And it, it, it was something that kind of, was very upsetting for me to see because I knew that we have just the exposure visually to guns normalizes. To your point, Norm, it kind of makes having guns around very normal. And that is something that if you're hunting and recreational, that's one thing. But to have that 24-7 exposure. So then we ended up following a cohort of these families, especially children. And even years out, five years out, that exposure, along with kind of regular exposures to guns, 11% of these children were reporting what we now kind of acknowledge as adverse childhood experiences, really trauma that has been there for literally decades. And so just what you said, think of school as the one safe place where you really hope that you're kind of nurturing any ability to protect a child in any format, and then now exposing them 24-7 to just the image of the gun, much less the physical gun. And I think that what we've done is basically resigned ourselves to committing like these acts of childhood trauma over and over and over again. And we have zero clue what the effects of that are, nor do we seem to care. And so I'm so troubled by this. And then I'll add to it. Unfortunately, we'll have to do more about guns because we need to and we'll have need for it. The final thing is that Tulsa, Oklahoma was tucked away in and it's one of these mass shootings. And that was at a hospital. 
And almost every hospital I've ever worked at, including my current affiliations, have all talked about having armed guards, armed security mags at the doors. And even despite that, there is now a conversation about whether we need ammunition training as health professionals, to which I basically said, there's no universe where I am ever going to be trained in ammunitions, because if that's the case, then I should leave the profession. So it's not just schools, it's, it's houses of worship, it's hospitals, grocery stores, schools, essentially the entire public that you and I can walk into. And, and that's what we're talking about. That's what's at stake here. And you know, uh, just uh, as we end, we started by talking about how this was front page news all across the globe. And it is because other countries simply cannot imagine what it is about the American psyche. And we have just gone off the rails. So we'd like to thank all of you who've listened for your membership. And please come back on June 17th when we do our next broadcast.